Hi, I'm Barb Sterner, and this is FEMA Podcast. So it's June 2018. This summer marks two significant anniversaries in terms of disasters. One, the 25 years after the 1993 Great Midwest Floods, which involved really the whole heartland. And then 10 years after the 2008 tornado, severe storms and floods in Iowa. Today we're joined by John Miller. John was a former regional administrator for FEMA, Region 7, and was heavily involved in the recovery of the 93 floods, retired, moved back to his family farm in Iowa, and then happened to be in a leadership position in 2008 for Black Hawk County uh, when that flood occurred. So, John, welcome. Glad to have you. Good to be here. Thank you. So let's start with 93. Okay. Huge, huge disaster, and still one of the nation's top right. worst disasters. And it, it heavily covered the, the area of your responsibility, Kansas, Nebraska, Missouri, Iowa. Looking back now, what are some of the things that, that came out of that flood in terms of uh, preparedness or lessons learned? I think uh, uh, when I came on board, it was, it was during the recovery process. The flood fight was over, and now we're, we were assessing, we were trying to go back and find out you know, what the damage was, how much it's gonna cost us, how we're gonna pay for it, working with all those communities. It was an exciting time, and in, in the midst of all of that, the legislature changed, the Harkin-Volkmer bill changed the formula for buying, buying structures out of the floodplain. The formula, old formula was 50% from the feds, 50% from state and local. The change came from 75% fed to 10% state and 15% local, which meant that it, it provided a whole new funding source, an incentive for people and communities to remove structures out of the floodplain. The thing that we did with that, though, is we were laying track ahead of the train. We'd never done this before. We never had this many structures. We never had this many uh, people impacted. We never had this many states involved in trying to do this all at once. And so it, uh, it provided uh, some excitement, but it also provided, <laughs> provided some frustration. The second part of that, too, was, because it was the coordination between not just FEMA, but uh, Department of Ag, Army Corps of Engineers, a number of federal agencies, uh, HUD, was involved in it too. And so all of those together meant coordinating with other federal agencies, coordinating with local, and trying to make sure that we got, it was consistent. The terrain from Northeast Iowa to the Arkansas, the Arkansas River in Kansas is different. From the Platte River in, uh, in Nebraska to the Boot Heel in Missouri, things are different. And so there was no, Trying to make that consistent was a big was part of the big issue. What were some of the ways that you accomplished that? Communication, communication, communication. Uh, being available. Staff, I relied heavily on staff. And if there was a problem and the staff got crosswise with somebody, I was the one that walked in and said, okay, how do we make this work? And uh, represented the, the, the agency. It was also then reporting back to, to the director, Witt, because he was a, a local emergency manager. And so he had people that he knew who would contact him directly. And so I tried to walk that fine line between making sure that people got what they were deserved, 
But occasionally, a community would try to reach across the line and say, well, we'll get you to pay for this. And we say, uh, no, that's not going to happen. So those are, some of the, those are some of the fun issues. So it sounds like mitigation really sort of took off as a result of this oh, yeah. disaster. Now that you're looking back 25 years later, do you see that progress has been made in the Midwest? Is there a different recovery now based on what you all learned in 93? I think the fact that uh, it, when we didn't, we didn't have numbers when we started this, we started taking hundreds and hundreds of fo- uh, structures out of the floodplain. We didn't know how this was going to pay dividends. We uh, assumed it was going to pay dividends, but we didn't. Looking back, it's paid huge dividends. My friend Tom Harkin uh, authored the um, Americans with Disabilities Act, and I said to him one day, I know that's a, you know, a hallmark of your, of your tenure, but I said, the impact that you had with that Harkin-Volkmer bill had uh, no, an enormous amount of impact on public policy in the Midwest and around the country. So now let's fast forward to 2008. Okay. You are now on the Blackhawk County Board of Supervisors, mm-hmm. so again you're in a leadership position, but this time more on a local level. Here comes this terrible, terrible flood, probably one of the worst disasters in Iowa's history. That puts you back in the disaster business again. What was that like? <laughs> well, and, and being in a different position, I had a different role to play. And part of that was just making sure that, that the staff on the county level and the locals understood what the expectation was, what was coming. As my friend said in the <clears throat> Buddy Young, that you can, if you give me a perfect disaster, I'll give you a perfect response. Roads get closed, water comes up, water goes places where it's not supposed to go. Making sure that I supported the staff, making sure that we did crossed our I's, dotted our T's, or vice versa. <laughs> that the, the staff had the support of the supervisors, both in funding and in support of what I knew. And the other fortunate part was another supervisor was a former emergency manager, so he was good, uh, good help too. What were some of the toughest decisions you had as a local leader in terms of leading the recovery from that 2008 flood? The biggest frustration was knowing what, we, what I knew and knowing what we could do and knowing if we got it done quickly enough, we could move a whole lot of structures out of the floodplain and we could do it rather quickly. Uh, the frustration was is getting the paperwork from the state and the feds to move fast enough to get that done. Uh, in, just in the Black Hawk County area, we identified about 45 homes and structures that we could take out of the floodplain. The flood happened in June. In September, we got the instruction to apply and notice to apply. In November, we've, we had to have our application in and in January, we then got the word that we could do. That's almost, what, six, eight months? People had moved on, people had done things. I think we wound up taking 15 homes out of the floodplain when we could have taken uh, three times that many. So that was my biggest frustration uh, in, during the time. We had good, good people and they understood what was, what was needed and uh, if they had questions, I could answer them. Uh, and so we, what we did in the mitigation process was, and not just structures, but laying down uh, rubber mats along uh, the highway where the water had washed over and washed the dirt out. When we put it back, we put rock, and we put 
rubber mats so that they next time it came it wouldn't it wouldn't wash out and it would save us money you talk about the the process for individual people with buyouts one of the things we often see is that a, a misunderstanding of what a buyout is it's not meant to be a recovery tool it's meant to be a permanent solution to removing high-risk properties from the floodplain right. to, to save lives and protect property. Did you find that misunderstanding to be common after 2008? Not really. We had people who said, uh, you know, I, I would like to sell my house. I've done this two, three times. It's time for me to move. Uh, and so I'll, I'll, I'll be willing to do that. And then the delay comes and they're, they don't have a place to live or they're living with relatives. Uh, and f finally, the frustration overtakes them, and they were looking to do it, and fair market value was good for them. Th that, that wasn't the frustration. The frustration was the long wait. Mm -hmm. What were some of the good things that came out of the county's recovery as a result of that flood? Oh, uh, a higher awareness of, of uh, the um, positive aspects of removing structures from the floodplain, uh, an awareness from not only the the staff, but also from the community. And looking back, uh, the, the, the good things that happened in terms of mitigation along the trails, along the roads, removal of structures, it, uh, I can smile. <laughs> I mean, it, one good example would be Cedar Falls. Yes. Cedar Falls and Waterloo are two fairly good-sized communities right. within your county. And uh, Cedar Falls has been buying out property since the 93 flood, actually. Yes. They've bought quite a bit over the last 25 years. Yes. You've had floods consistently over that period of time, too. Do, have you noticed a difference in impact to individuals from those buyouts? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think the last number I heard, which uh, I think the, since 1993, Cedar Falls has taken close to 350 structures out of the floodplain. They did it methodically. They did it periodically. They just they just kept. If one would come, they would do it. They would buy it, and they would, and they realized that it was saving it was saving them money. Have you seen floods affect those areas since those houses have been removed? Yes, but not to the extent of 2008. But again, it's the same thing as as it was in across the river from uh, uh, Jefferson City, Missouri. We took in that, I think we took 450 structures out of that. And the Mississippi comes up and the Mississippi goes down. The other part that the communities appreciate from the, the mitigation uh, regulations is the deed restriction. Because there's always a temptation, because now that the flood is 10 years away, oh geez, you know, that's a beautiful view down there. I think we'll go down there and build a house. Or maybe we'll put a Ford dealership down there. <laughs> and so the temptation is to go back in and, and rebuild. And the, and the communities have, have held the line because they didn't have a choice. And the, and the feds were a partner, a partner with that, and that was, a, that was a good choice. So what ideas do you have, based on, on your role in these disasters, to help other communities uh, make the recovery go smoother. The first thing that I would suggest, uh, let, let me start with, the, on the, with uh, the local leaders. Emergency management is way, way down on the priority list. Law enforcement, public health, parks, roads, bridges are all much, uh, much more uh, important. And so 
what happens is that, that it gets relegated to the bottom. My first suggestion was be make sure that, that uh, you have good people in your emergency management offices. And the second thing is, is make sure that the elected officials who are newly elected get an orientation of what that office can do. Second thing is, I would think, uh, is to uh, make sure that that's your professional staff, other than the emergency manager, understands that so there's, there's some training. The uh, county engineer, the, the veterans affairs person that, that can help it can then tap into for, for veteran issues for veterans, your parks and recreation, because a lot of them are built on rivers, how they, what they can do to, instead of b putting in a, a shelter and boarding it up on all sides, put in a shelter and leave it two sides open. Use it so that you can, the water can flow through. It's a whole lot easier than trying to clean up afterwards. Third thing that I would suggest is uh, that each community with your planning and zoning and um, emergency manager and whomever else you would choose to put at the table, do an inventory of all structures in the floodplain. So you know what's there. You know that if the, and they say, well, uh, I've lived here 30 years and the water isn't going to get up here. Well, that's what we said in 93. And that's what we said in 2008. <laughs> and I've heard it all over, I heard it all over the Midwest. So if you have an inventory, you, you can do two things. First of all, you, you know where the houses are at and the structures are at. And the second thing is, if you begin to invest, even at one at a time, you can pull those things out with some grants from both the state and the feds and buy a house here when it comes up for sale. You don't have to force anybody out. You know, Grandma lives there and she's going to a retirement center and we don't want the house, so we'll buy Grandma's house and we'll remove it from the floodplain. Those, I think, are some things that will be, and again, you have the latest numbers, but it, 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 my numbers now are nine to one. For every dollar invested, it pays nine in the long run. What about some other things that communities can do in advance? Obviously, if, if they have floodplain, they've adopted a floodplain ordinance. But what about something that could be done with codes or zoning or planning? What, what kinds of things could a community do that would set that stage or better protect them when a disaster comes? Besides doing inventory, I think that if, when you establish those, that floodplain boundary, that boundary is not set in stone. That boundary moves. And so I would suggest that the community look and see what, if they're vulnerable in any other areas, and look and see what structures are there and be really, really tough on building down in that floodplain, particularly for businesses. Businesses like, to, because A, the, the land is cheap, and B, they can go down in there and do those things, and then what happens is, is that it costs the community, then we have to go back in there and, and either rebuild the roads, put the, put the infrastructure back, or we have to go in there and, and do a, a flood fight or evacuate people. And so I would think moving that out a little bit farther, but it's really, really tough when you've got somebody waving a, a money saying, oh, here, I'll put this business down here and it'll be just fine and it'll be, look at the tax dollars. Talk to us a little bit about how the 2008 flood affected Blackhawk County. What was the impact here and, and how big is this county roughly? Uh, 135,000. 
Cedar Falls got the brunt. Waterloo, after the 61 floods, <laughs> a long time ago, built flood walls. And that saved downtown Waterloo. And, and Cedar Falls did a lot of yeoman's work in the flood fight. We had places that were flooded, but we also then moved it down the river and Cedar Rapids got, got more than we did. And so for, as far as a, as a crucial impact or a devastating impact, it did not. But it made, it made some awareness and we did some things like the uh, utilities plant in Cedar Falls is, is working to put some, some uh, levees up and some dikes to make, make sure that the people have electricity and, and those kinds of things. In terms of homes and individuals, was there quite an impact in 2008? Not a lot. Because Cedar Falls had already removed a lot of those structures. There were some, uh, and there were some in different places, uh, uh, periodic spots around the county. But as far as uh, hundreds and hundreds of people being displaced, that didn't happen. We've been talking about floods predominantly, but one of the tenets of emergency management is planning for all hazards. Right. Uh, what, what's your insight into that, again, for advice to other communities that may not have been hit yet or are recovering? If you're in the process of recovering, it doesn't make... What you need to do is to, to look to the future so that if it's a tornado, do some safe rooms in the house if you're rebuilding. If you're uh, doing a rebuilding in the, uh, the flooded home, make sure it's elevated. Um, and looking at at the emergency management plan to make sure that it's not just the people and the infrastructure, but being in Iowa, it's, a, it's agriculture. What happens if, if a tornado hits and destroys some of these large farming operations, feeding operations, and you have a lot of dead animals? You need to have some kind of a plan to make sure that you know how to take care of that. Lastly, if you had a way to have a magic wand and you could make a wish uh, for f the future, for emergency preparedness or disaster preparedness on any level, individuals or communities, what would you want to see the most? What I would like to see is, um, is people remember and not forget what they learned from the past. We had people who, you know, who got flooded out in, uh, in 2008 and went right back into the places where they built because that was theirs and they wanted to do that. I think if we can educate folks and uh, to understand that Mother Nature isn't kind and Mother Nature may not be this week or next week or 10 years from now, but somewhere along the way there's going to be another flood. I owe it and I think the elected officials owe it to the communities that they live in to look to that time and make some, um, continue to make some steady progress in doing what they need to do to, uh, to ensure the, the safety of the people in their community. John, it's been a pleasure to talk to you this afternoon. Thank you so much for sharing your insight. You're welcome. For those listening, we've linked this episode on our FEMA Facebook page, and we invite you to join the conversation in the comments. If you have ideas for a FEMA podcast topic, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema Dot dhs dot gov. If you would like to learn more about this episode or other topics, please visit fema.gov backslash podcast. Thanks again for joining us.